to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just busts through the defence. Just watch this. Spillane gathers beautifully. In go the Irish forwards. This is Lenahan. Bursting into the 22. Back to Bradley. Back to Kiernan. The drop at goal is over. Michael Kiernan has done it. Good evening and welcome to the Molecast. Good evening. Good evening. We're going to start where everyone is talking about it. The bathroom smells emanating. <laughs> From the Ravenhill dressing rooms, well, they weren't even very Ravenhill. Um, we're going to apparently start, they were. We're going to oh. oh well, we're going to start with yeah Ulster, uh, their game in South Africa called off due to E. coli or norovirus. E. coli and norovirus. And norovirus, not a pleasant combination. Um, it leaves them with a headache for later on in the season in terms of when they fit that game in. But also, there were some kind of intriguing comments made after the game that you had a, a, a bone to pick with. Correct, after the game that didn't happen. So, Martin Ayai, who is CEO of the URC, came out and said, oh, we've looked into it, and it seems in, uh, that it's more likely than not that Ulster, Ulster brought E. coli and norovirus with them to South Africa, um, which, to my mind, is completely implausible. Like, like how it could get past... How it could get past his lips and think, oh, this is a reasonable thing to say. It's not at all plausible that a team who went and played the Lions and beat the Lions at altitude, you know, four days later, five days later, realized, oh, we've actually had E. coli and norovirus the entire time since we flew out of Belfast. And it's only now just manifesting itself when we have arrived in KwaZulu Natal, whose wastewater. And drinking water systems were extremely badly disrupted as far back as May and throughout the uh, summer by severe natural weather disasters. So there's been, I, I did some looking up at various South African newspapers and websites. So definitely back in May, there was drinking water um, bans or advice given by local authorities for people not to do drinking water. Beaches have been closed due to the presence of E. coli, uh, in the seawater and this was ongoing from May, June, July, August, September and October. These reports have not ceased. It's very obvious that they picked up E. coli and norovirus in South Africa in KwaZulu-Natal. Now that's not the sharks fault. The sharks do not run water and wastewater infrastructure in KwaZulu-Natal but it's certainly not Ulster's fault and the reason that Martin and I decided to make this Utterly implausible remark is, in my opinion, because the owner of the the Bulls, who's a New York based South African lawyer, had a big spout. Uh, sorry, the Sharks. sharks. Excuse me. Uh, gave out stink because it's lost revenue for the Sharks and it's not their fault, you know? But this idea that it's somehow Ulster's fault is complete nonsense. Martin and I has made himself look foolish by saying it. And he's also made himself, in my opinion, look quite weak. Because that's not true. They didn't bring it with them. They got it in KwaZulu-Natal. And he basically caved because 
you know, a very wealthy person who has a big stake in South African rugby got, got the hump and probably gave out to him. And that is not how the CEO of a league should behave. And, you know, we're seeing... I know the Premiership has a, a different CEO than they previously had in other years. I can't think of his name at the moment. But English rugby seems to be finally... English club rugby seems to be finally realising that they have to have proper governance, which is not run by the owners, which the owners sign up to and do not control. And this idea of uh, a boss and an underling, which is what the relationships between uh, the uh, URC CEO and some of the club owners, is, is worrying. It's not how it should be. Negotiations and recriminations should almost exclusively be carried out in private. And the CEO should be a very firm figure who commands respect. And this has made me lose some degree of respect for him. I'm not saying he's a bad guy or anything, but my initial sort of emotional reaction to him is like, Jesus, this makes him look weak. That's fucking stupid. It's obviously stupid. Like, there was no games called off across Ulster in any of the other sports like football and ga because of norovirus, because of E. coli. Plus, Glasgow also had the same, who played the Sharks the previous weekend. So you're going, what, did like Glasgow and Ulster fly down in the same plane and, and buy it in duty-free and bring it down with them? And, like, there was no football matches called off in Glasgow because of E. coli or norovirus. So, like, it's, it, it's, it's completely ridiculous, and it's done for exactly that, that reason that she said, basically kowtowing to somebody who, you know, is, is wealthy, and made noise about this. And like he's he's the figurehead of the league. He he makes it look ridiculous by just by pointing the finger at you know somebody else because you know he was he was given a, an ear, he was given an earache. Like, ah, nonsense. Absolute nonsense. No. And get... the impact for Ulster is that they have to play that match probably during the Six Nations. Mm-hmm. And they've got to fly down to South Africa to play a one-off match. So They'd kept their players from the Emerging Ireland Tour in South Africa. They'd gone down, beaten the lines, and, you know, you do your two matches back-to-back. It's like a little tour, and we were talking about this at the beginning of the season, that this is what the URC sort of has to handle in terms of fixtures. Like, the fact that Connacht had such a hard fixture list is Mm -hmm. just that, you know, look, you have to play your interprovincial derby matches at certain times of the season, Christmas time. And you have to play two or three matches against the South African teams. Or if you're South African, you've got to go come up and play two or three matches, three matches ideally, away in a row to make the travel feasible. And now Ulster are going to go down missing their best players at a time when, well, the Sharks are at full going, but it really doesn't matter. It's just like it's a one-off, which is the big thing. One of the things that uh, was mentioned was that the match may not take place and the uh, result may be decided by a competitions committee, which is which is wild. Like These two teams will be competing for home knockout games uh, when, when we get to that stage of the season. They're both very strong teams. Uh, they're already in the home knockout positions. And I completely understand that the logistics of flying a team down probably during the Six Nations to play one game and flying home is, you know, cost will be one massive issue. Organisation is a secondary issue. Uh, but deciding it by by a competitions committee is is sort of wild and really open. Kind of a Duckworth-Lewis type of uh, 
random formula. Well, you know, you see, I'll give you an example. Like, how many I, Bible groups do you have? Ulster versus the Blue Bulls. This could be quite close now. You know, but just like you see how Anai basically folded under pressure there. And what happens if the Sharks go, we would have won that one with a bonus point and we're not taking any other result? Because you go, oh, yeah, you would. You've got loads of TV revenue behind you. So I think that like his his poor performance in one tweet, essentially, or one statement uh, would... And I'm not like a diehard Ulster fan by any means, although I would look like quite fondly on Ulster. Uh, but I'm not a diehard, diehard provincial fan. But like that to me is not, that to me is plausible. That that the result could be completely influenced by uh, by just who shouts the loudest. Um, that competition committee thing just calls to mind one thing that I've forgotten for quite a while. Uh, is that in the World Cup, loads of games are called off for typhoon. Yes, <laughs> Hagibus. And then in uh, the last two COVID seasons, I didn't remember this more clearly, they were just handing out whatever, 28, 28 nils, nils or nil alls. couldn't play a game. Well, or whichever way they decided. You yeah. know, Leinster are going, oh, you couldn't feel the team uh, because of COVID. You know, we've picked a team with no COVID in it. And Montpellier picked a team. And you both, we both have COVID, but we had more COVID. So it's 28 nil Montpellier. Yeah. That's, uh, um, it doesn't, it's not a good look. Uh, no, and I, as I said before, I do understand the logistics, like flying 40 people down to South Africa on for Ulster's, like that's a that's a big chunk out of your budget. We had another issue we, we had suggested, it was in the Ulster sphere. Um, Ireland would be playing their sixth, um, second string uh, national team match. So we're counting... Ireland teams, which are not called Ireland 15, they were called Ireland, playing two games against the Maori, but they were uncapped. Um, so the likes of Kieran Frawley didn't, hadn't received their first Irish cap yet. Then three emerging Ireland games, and now there's an Ireland A game. So this is sixth in the, in the, most, in the last six months at least. Uh, sort of second string national team. And uh, well, I'm delighted it's being played in uh, the RDS you were making a different case. Well, it's really Hugo is making it. Um, but played in Ravers. Rocking Ravenhill. Fortress Ravers. Fortress Ravers. And the argument for playing it in Dublin is that there's a lot of people who are Irish international rugby fans who are going to be in Dublin for the match that's on the following day. Um, and, you know, the RDS go grand and it's got the capacity and Dublin's got a bigger, um, you know, Dublin's got a, the biggest population in the country, so you're more likely to get, you know, a bigger crowd. But Belfast doesn't get many international matches. The last international match it got was uh, an ill-fated warm-up game um, prior to the 2007 World Cup. Raj saved our bacon up in Belfast against the Italians. So... I, I, I think it would have been pretty cool. Yeah, so do I. And I'm, I'm delighted. It's not like I'm, when I say delighted, I'm happy. Like, I've taken to it uh, in the RDS. But, you know, Munster are playing South African Parky Cueve, uh, which is, is really good for Munster fans and really good for rugby in Cork. They don't have to, they don't have to travel as far. Like, the Cork fans are expected to travel a lot. They're expected to go to Limerick, which isn't the, I know it's not a thousand miles away, but it's a, it's a trip. 
And then for all the internationals, you can't play an international. You can't play a test match outside the Aviva due to the the naming restrictions and the deal done with the with the name sponsor in the stadium. Um, so you can't play those internationals. But an, an A game, you could play in, in Ravenhill or, or, or Munster can play South Africa in Parque Cueve. So it, it does seem to me that that would, been, that would have been a, a good way to, uh, not really just to get the team on the road, but also f- to, <laughs> to allow Ravenhill to see you know, good international rugby. I always find it quite curious that the Kiwis, um, you know, they have a, essentially maybe one or two matches per season in Eden Park, and then they play in... Hamilton and Dunedin, Carisbrook, and, yeah, yeah um, you know, and Wellington, where they always lose, it seems like, and um, yeah, they play, play. I know there's a, there's sort of more medium sized cities and no big city as big and centre. But the box do it as well, Ian, yeah. and so do so do Australia. You know, they don't all play their their uh, home games in the capital. Like they take them, they take them around the uh, the country. Yeah, but my 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 fear was that basically. They try and shoehorn in God Save the King. I think they sort of... I, I don't know if, if they have to play it. Like, it's in in international matches. You play like the national... For Irish rugby, you play the national anthem plus... Uh, come on, you boys in green. My <laughs> understanding is... No, let's give it a last year. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, so I think, like, if they played up in, in uh, Northern Ireland, I think it would be, like, God Save the King plus, um, you know... Joshua goes to Stuttgart. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, a minute silence for her Madge, just so they could get one in before the year's end. <laughs> yeah. The Kiwis would lap it up. She's still out of state. <laughs> they haven't got the news that she died down there yet. <laughs> Owner's in there. That'll knock the wind out of him. Ownership of Connacht has passed from Bundyaki to Mackenzie Mack Hansen. <laughs> He's not as cool when you call him Mackenzie, is he? <laughs> You're named after American Girl Gymnast. <laughs> it is Mack Hansen's Connacht now, though. Bundy took the wrong time to get a ban. Macintosh, Hans. Macintosh, that's more like it. Um, yeah, you know, they went over uh, and, and knocked, over, knocked over the Scarlets and got a bonus point out of it. And also, we saw a fucking huge DDT in the game. <laughs> I don't know, which is which was wild. Um, I've heard it described as both a, a Undertaker-style tackle and a DDT. Now, much more like a DDT. The Undertaker did a pile driver. Yeah. Known as the Tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> DDT is where you sort of fall backwards and slap someone on the ass on the way down. Like the no, well, this day you can also do like a Mankind or... Uh, Jake the Snake Roberts. Yeah, the, but the, but the double arm DDT was oh. by uh, Cactus Jack. Oh, yeah. So it was more like a double arm DDT. <laughs> it was one, one of the funniest, plus most dangerous thing I've seen on, uh, on a rugby screen this season. And uh, you got away with it? He got yellow. And uh, this is what I was, I was sort of trying to describe to you. Like, red cards used to be, f- when, when we were growing up playing rugby, they used to be for things which were outside the game. Uh, like uh, biting, kneeing people in the head, kicking people in the face. Moral uh, infringements. Moral infringements. As yeah. We've had this discussion before. But now there's a framework for red cards for things which happen in the game, so which are part of the game, specifically high tackles, collisions in the air. 
which you'll often see red cards for these days. So there's a framework for how those are uh, litigated, and it's the referees go through that painstakingly in order to to be consistent. But when you have these things that are wild, and you're going, well, it wasn't a high tackle. It was just like, it was fucking DDT at a rook. You know, it is a red card, uh, but there's no framework for it. And, you know, it's not the only thing. And, and I'm not saying that the, the right answer is always a red card. You have this huge collision between, uh, in the Leinster and Munster game, between Jamie Osborne and John Klein. And uh, you're going like, there is no framework for that collision. No. You know? And so he chips over the top, Klein jumps up, um, doesn't, doesn't make the block down, has failed to make the block down. Doesn't do an awful lot wrong, in my opinion. I, but it's really dangerous. Yeah. I, I thought he struck his hip. I thought he struck his hip into him. Did you? I, I thought he threw his hip. Yeah. And I, I, I think, like, and, he, and, and his hip into his head. Now, well, he drops his elbow into his head as well. But I, I thought yeah. that was like, oh, I'm protecting myself. But it, yeah. was, it was still like, you see, the thing is, like, when you make a tackle, you don't. It doesn't. You don't have to automatically. You can't show intent of like, oh, I meant to tackle you low, but I actually tackled you high. Everyone goes, oh, no, that doesn't matter. You still tackled them high. So in this uh, instance, you're going, well, it doesn't matter that you didn't mean to hit him, that you just jumped up. You didn't make the block, and you did clobber him in the head with your elbow. So is that automatically a red? And I, I didn't think so. I thought Bracer just sort of made a quite a common sense decision in that one. Yeah. I have to say, it, when I... Saw it over and over again. I couldn't... I think slow motion really distorts how the thing happens in your mind. I couldn't get over how heavy a contact Osborne took. Oh. But what It seemed like he should have had time to react to the gigantic man. Yeah, the, the seven-foot-tall, 21-stone South African. <laughs> but he obviously didn't. And um, as a result, like he took a really nasty look, and you know the way he fell folded back over his oh. ankle. It was just like, I'm, you know, surprised he wasn't more seriously injured the way he took the contact. But at the same time, I, I mean, if the the real comparison point for me was always that uh, CJ on Pat Lambie in on tour in 2016. Yeah, and uh, like it just it just didn't seem nearly as bad as that, which was like a wild. Schumacher-esque. Yeah, cynical, very poor last judgment by CJ, and he got punished for it, and that was that. Um, well, the thing that I heard, uh, now I'm going to discount the fucking stupid stuff that I read and heard about Osborne should have been yellow-carded for taking the man out in the air, because that's fucking nonsense. If you said that, you're a moron. But uh, the thing that I heard, which did sort of convince me, is like, Klein does jump straight up in the air and not into him. Yeah. Uh, which is true. Like there might be a little bit of forward movement, but he is he is jumping straight up. He's not like yeah. doing what CJ did, which was climbing into Pat Lambie with his hip. So, uh, like, but that's what I mean. Like, what's what's the right decision there? Yeah. You know, is there uh, like it's really dangerous? One of the players got badly injured. Uh, like you said, he not more badly injured, but like, you don't know with a with a bang in the head. It looked bloody terrible, mm. but. And and there's no room for saying well intent or malice like, uh, but I don't know what the answer is. I'm glad I'm not put on the spot like the ref was. I thought he did really well to just make the decision straight away and kind of leave no space for them to be go like, can we upgrade? Can we 
ruminate over this for three minutes with re- slow motion replays. He just made the decision and was like, well, let's just get on with it. What do you think? Uh, I think it's kind of been tough. I, I thought the yellow card was justified. I thought he jumped straight up. I thought he threw his hip out. I could understand. Um, Red might have been just about justified, given the profile that concussion has in the game and the fact that there's a lawsuit and the fact that Irish guys are involved. Uh, No card would have been absolutely out of step with the way the game is is, Mm -hmm. uh, officiated now. So... Yellow was kind of like the Goldilocks uh, solution. Yeah. So I think that made sense. I'd be more, I'm more interested in the, the Mac Hansen taking on the Crown of Connacht. And I think this is very rugby, the fact that we spend so much time talking about refereeing decisions mm, and concussion. That Mac Hansen, like Connacht side sign, Connacht don't have the same, don't seem to have, I, I don't really know. The, the same restrictions on non-Irish qualified players or like a Mac Hansen is Irish qualified. So like various guys pitch up a Connacht, about four guys a year pitch up from Connacht from the Southern Hemisphere with uh, various, you know, a variety of, of playing backgrounds from, you know, sevens, sevens rugby league, promising underage careers. Um, and some of them are Irish qualified and some of them aren't. And like some of them might be Tony Cascarino Irish qualified. Like you really, you don't know. And mm-hmm. you, you kind of go, ah, yeah, this is, it's like the Shawshank. It's like, ah, this is this year's, yeah, this is this year's intake, you know, the, the class of 06. Um, and Matt Hansen, very much one of those uh, Australian backpackers, you know, sort of missed his bus out of Galway. Now he's playing for Connacht. And now he's the king of Connacht. Oh, like in, in the absence of Bundy, the guy has absolutely played himself uh, into legend. Like it's it's a magnificent achievement. And I mean, sure, look, he, he was a good player. He's playing for the Brumbies. He was underage. He was all that sort of stuff. Um, but to to do as well as he's done, like is is like a happy happy marriage of sort of environment and circumstance and. The guy's a, he's a long way from home. Yeah. But he probably is at home now. Um it's 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 a brilliant story. Yeah, Connacht is a great fit for him, and not just because of uh, Andy Friend. A lot of people really and you rarely hear you rarely hear people who've who've left provinces like specifically badmouth any of them. Everyone who plays in an Irish province seems to get quite a lot from it. They enjoy it. But Connacht guys really seem to love it. You know, it's it's a. I think it's a really good, um, it's a good organization for inclusivity and welcoming people, uh, which uh, there's a lot to be said for that sort of rugby value, which we all want to talk about. We'll get to that later on. Yeah, I think it, it helps Connacht that two things. I always think help them. One, they won the league, and I know I said this a couple of weeks ago, but they rarely won stuff I know they have won some Inter-Pro titles uh, when um, Kieran Fitz was the captain mm-hmm. 80s uh, but you know those are those are extremely rare and those are different times uh, the fact that this current incarnation of the club which I consider to be the post um, protest about the winding down of Connacht that mm-hmm. a few attempted I consider everything after after that to be this kind of current incarnation of the, the province or club as this, like, okay, we are the kind of island of misfit toys in a way. We mm-hmm. don't have a huge natural constituency for rugby because it's just, there's not that many people in Connacht and it's 
like not as big as Gaelic games by a long shot, but they have built their kind of like, yeah, there's going to be some ex Leinster players. Yeah, there's going to be some guys who slip through the net in other places. Yeah, there's going to be a selection of, um, uh, pro- maybe project players. Bundy became one of them, and then it's obviously like super local talents like Robbie Henshaw. But that club has its identity in a way that sort of Munster is struggling to still re-establish its identity. Yeah, but even, I don't want to talk about Munster when we're talking about Connacht, so uh, delete all that bit. Um, when you're, we all grew up in Ireland, obviously. Mm-hmm. And when you're from Ireland, I find that you, you're obviously Hibernocentric and you, you think of, oh, well, Connacht's out in the West, you know, and they have a smaller population. And I think, I find if you, if you take a step back, you just go, Connacht is on the edge of the world. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, you pretty much got sports ground a road and then a lake and then an enormous ocean mm-hmm. and this is where we play and if, if you were from like if you were from mainland europe you just there go this is the edge of the world here like there was an aib ad where i'm pretty sure the ground was up in sligo the gag round um I'm, I'm pretty sure it was eastkey's gag round mm-hmm. um and you're going like you know if you're if you're missing your kick your your kick out to your your wing half like it's going in the ocean. <laughs> yeah. The ball is gone. It's in Medicado. Like the pitch, the pitch is the, the pitch is literally carved into a cliff. Um and like Galway is kind of that place, except city-wise. So it's it's a really epic place to play your rugby. And just that 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 combination of circumstance, like had Matt Hansen stayed in Australia, what would have happened to him? Like, would he have got a squad contract? Would he have, would he have played club footy somewhere? Would he been? Whereas, as you say, like he's he's the Prince of Galway, now, yeah. King of Galway. Um, so it's it's a it's a brilliant story, and it was it was a really good match. Like I thought, Connacht were really physical. Um, I know the like the story is that Deval Senegal Senegal said like you got to stop being nice, Connacht boys, and. You know, like what Connacht off, like what Connacht struggled with for the last few seasons, have has has just been that inconsistency, like that ability to score so many points in some matches, and then to give up so many points in other matches. And they were just really physical against the Scarlets. They didn't let up in the fight, and and they play good rugby. Yeah, like they they haven't given up on that. Like their handling was better than the Scarlets. Some of the lines they caught were really good. Like their their willingness to attack was really good. Um, it was a really good game. It was. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Really yeah. enjoyed it. Um, and really enjoyed watching Connacht. But like when, when Hansen gets the ball, you think, I reckon he's going to score. I remember when uh, you came out of the game that uh, Leinster and Connacht played the first of their about four games last season in the RDS. Hansen had a brilliant game for Connacht previously, and he was just amazing against Leinster. Uh, and you were just you couldn't stop talking about it. You were just like, get him in the team, get him in the Irish team. And then you know what happened. Yeah. Um and it's he as it, like we've we said it enough, like it's just a great, it's a it's a collision of circumstances which has worked out really well for everyone. Just watch this. Great possible play though. This shows how dangerous they are with the ball in the hand. I'm not sure if this counts as a hot take. Munster were beaten, you know, five nil on the in the match point scoreboard by Leinster, away from home. Seem to be taking huge amounts of heart from that defeat. 
like last year where they were shorn of lots of their frontline players, they had this big performance uh, against Wasps. Wasps. Um, RIP. Um, and, you know, they, it really it kind of brought the joy back to them. And I think there's a little bit of that in this quite heavy defeat to Leinster that they would normally not be so chipper about, but it's the, the presence of the young players that we've mentioned time and time again starting and making individual impacts, if not enough to turn the tide against Leinster. Well, they're missing Tyke Byrne. So, like, Tyke Byrne was the best player. Okay, maybe Johnny Sexton was the best player, maybe Robbie Henshaw. But, I mean, Tyke Byrne's performance in that third test, <laughs> they're going... If, if Ireland, like, if we had knighthoods, he'd be coming back. Like, Michael D would have to fly out to make him a knight before he could make his way home. Like, it was it was a matter of national urgency to knight that man for an absolutely epic 10 to 15 minutes in that, right? So, like, Tyburn is their best player. They didn't have him. Um, but then there was a number of other players that Munster were missing. And oh, Munster have come down with a really good team, or come up, sorry, to Dublin with a really good team in recent seasons and haven't performed at all and haven't had the belief about themselves, which I think must like must absolutely like depress, stroke, and infuri- infuriate you as a Munster fan. And the really awkward thing is that you want to support the team and you're so much kind of I can't see anything bad about the team, including the coach. And you're sort of going, but the coach is an absolute fucking wanker. <laughs> But I can't say it. I'm really, really compromised here. I can't give any fine sign of weakness to outsiders. And you're there going, no, your coach is shit. You should absolutely lay into him. Whereas there was a real verve and ambition about the way they played. And in terms of get him in the team, take Jack Crowley. Get him in the team. Get him in the fucking team. Like, he should be in the squad for the Fiji, because he's going to play the night before against New Zealand, right? So I'm not going to ask him to double up against South Africa and then play the fourth, the fifth. Um, but have him in the squad, have him in the squad for Fiji, have him in the squad for Australia, not just the squad for a nice day out, the 23. Assuming that Johnny Sexton is definitely going to start the South Africa and the Australian matches. I wouldn't say Crowley starts the, um, the Fiji match, but I would have him on the bench. Like... He created so much space for guys around him. Like in like no one else did. Like Johnny Sexton, sorry, Johnny Johnny Sexton creates space by being really, really clever and shouting and pointing and be, by being Tom Brady. Whereas Crowley does it by being, being elusive. Yeah, by being elusive, by being aggressive, by being skillful, like in the line. And it's not just all random fast-footed shit. Like it's 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 really good football. And he escaped Henshaw, and he escaped Ringrose when they got in close. And you're just there going, we don't have anybody else like this. Like I I can't I'm trying to think of anybody who has been like this playing in Ireland. Like, get him in the fucking squad and stop wasting your time like you've wasted the last 12 months. I sent you both texts and I thought, oh, I better, you know, stay storm. I don't want to, you know, completely go over the you know, over the top criticizing Joey, then laid into Joey just going, he should bring Harry Byrne and Jack Crowley down to New Zealand alongside Sexton and stop wasting his time with, you know, the other two guys. Who was on? It was uh, Carberry and the guy from uh, Carty. Yeah. Right? Like, don't bother. Like, you know, Sexton's going to be number one, right? You know what the other two guys are like. So bring Byrne and bring Crowley and find out on a tour environment what's going to matter. 
right? Because you got a World Cup following in 14 months. Mm -hmm. He brought Harry Bird, who's made of glass, right? So that didn't work out. But at least he made the call and didn't bring Ross. And he didn't bring Crowley. And you're there going, ah, Faz, like, you're a risk taker. But just double down on this, man. Like, make it happen. I tell you, and I've been saying it for, I don't know how long, get him in the squad. Get him in the squad. Two years and probably... It's, it's six months. I like I see the circumspect stuff from Darcy. I hear it from Jackman, all this kind of squad. Oh, you know, he's going to run his spurs. Bollocks. Get him in the squad. Do it now. What comes to mind is, when you're talking about getting uh, Crowley in the team is we had a conversation about JJ Hanrahan and his sort of like uh, Spectre in Munster's past. And then someone pointed out to us at the end of the article about Jeremy Staunton. There's a passage about Munster shouldn't let this happen to JJ Hanrahan. And bloody did happen to JJ Hanrahan. So they shouldn't let it happen to Crowley. Was that the guy from the Pulitzer Committee? <laughs> Where the hell have you been? <laughs> it was actually the Nobel Committee. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great article. Uh, it was, yeah, it was one of, they were fun to write. Um, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think Crowley's an absolute natural. It's like he's, he's, a, he's a great player. He, he's such a natural runner. He's passes well. Um, he just does everything so well, and he's abrasive. He's tough. Loves playing rugby. He's just a natural. Like you know, when you can like Joey went off injured in. A, I know he's grounded in training now, but you're going like in sort of making a you know you're good. Ta- Joey tackled well in that game, but like Joey's pretty pretty fragile. Joey's pretty fragile. Joey's really fragile. And Crowley's like just taking and giving punches like one of the great middleweights of the 1950s, lads who fought like 40 times a year. And, you know, I don't think he's going to get broken up. I don't think anything is. I think it's just a case like he's really good at rugby. Like, so get him into the team. Another player who's really good at rugby is the, uh, <laughs> our new anointed one, Kieran Frawley, who had a lovely game at fullback. And a lo- he's a lovely runner and a lovely passer as well. He's a lovely fella. Uh, great singing voice. <laughs> I, I lo- I've thought about, I, I'm sure I said this on a podcast uh, previously that I wanted to see Frawley play at fullback. And I accept that centre is a good position for him because it's one step from out half, mm. he's physical, he's big, it gives you that distributor. But I, I thought that it's a very difficult position. So this is pre Hugo Keenan. I thought it was a difficult position to get into Leinster because Robbie Henshaw is just such a boss that yeah. you're not going to overtake him in the first 15. Um, but for all his f- physique and skill set, like he's he's big, he's six foot three. Mm-hmm. Um, he has the guy background, right? So his fielding is is going to be good. Uh, he's got a great boot, and it gives you the second distributor, which is obviously a model that Lancaster likes playing. And what Leinster originally were doing, like sorry, Joey Carberry was the original manifestation of that two playmaker attack, you know, ability to attack either mm-hmm. side. Um. Now, what did you call them? Threats and oh yeah, uh, playmakers and weapons. Playmakers and weapons, yeah. Um, and the unfortunate thing for Frawley is that he's been bounced around from position to position. Now he's still astonishingly young. Like I mean, he was playing for he was playing for Scaries when he was seventeen, and then he was involved with Leinster when he was nineteen. So he's only twenty four now. I'd be now, like twenty five later. This which year. is you know so he's he's he's. He's at the age of a World Cup cycle where being versatile is a benefit. 
Like, he's not going to overtake Johnny Sexton. We all hope. We all hope that Johnny Sexton remains to be deadly until uh, November, December 2023, mm-hmm. in which case he can just go off and do as many ads and public speaking or whatever he wants to do. Um, or, or coach. Um, but you, but what, in four years' time, and he's 29, he needs to have a position. And he's, like, he's got all the makings of a good fullback. Got all the, a lot of the making good out half as well, and a good center. So this is yeah. this is the challenging thing for him is like you know he's got to make a decision about where does he want to play. Yeah, I but, but I, I thought he did very well at fullback. Oh, he did unquestionably, and he you know he showed the sort of the two parts which you'd want to see from a fullback, and that he hit the line outside there outside center really well. You know, both like in terms of pace and in terms of his his movements and then distribution so he could get through that gap and then release somebody. But he's also able to step in and be in first receiver and run a back line like an out half. I don't think the versatility is an issue at all for him yet, I have to say. As you say, you know, when you're in that 20 to 24 age bracket still, like the the first sort of p- period of your professional career, versatility is a huge plus. It's a blessing. Yeah. And then and when then, you're older, it becomes a curse. Correct. You know, but like the knock-on effect of like next se- after next season, Johnny Sexton's not going to be. I don't see Johnny Sexton playing any any longer than that. You know, like he's the competitive fire might still be there, but he he knows himself like that. Well, I, I don't think it will. Like this is like Drico in his last Six Nations was brilliant, and then a few months later, just pulled his calf and just couldn't stay fit. That mentally, yeah, he just point. he just couldn't bring the fight as he had done a few months, that just the incentive wasn't there. And look, I really hope with Sexton, and I got, not that I want Sexton to be pulling his calf, but like I really hope with Sexton that just that, that competitiveness and that fire drags him to the World Cup. And then, and then after that, you're just sort of going... He like, just smiles at everyone all the time. That'd be he, weird. He, he basically turns into Santa Claus. Yeah, okay. Maybe it happens. So I think that for all the... After that, like after Sexton uh, retires... Like then it's a very different situation where Frawley might just, for example, Leo or whoever is the next coach is, you know, when they're not coming with the t- changeover and coach, they're not coming from the, this is our this is our depth chart, this is the way it's always been. Ross is number two, Harry's number three, Frawley's number four. And a new coach might come in, or even if it's Andrew Goodman, for example, might go in, well, I don't want Frawley to play the 10. Like, decision's made. You know, Ross will be my backup. Uh, or Harry will be my backup. Whichever way the, the cookie crumbles, and it might be I want Harry to play ten, but like Harry's Harry's injury is injury list is is absurd almost. Uh, so you're looking at Frawley who's had his own injuries, but you can see that when Frawley collects them, they're like I got my face broken twice because I'm attacking people with my face. You know, you <laughs> only understand where they're coming from. But I think once their Lancaster leads and Sexton leads, then it's a tabula rasa, a clean slate. As far as 10 concerned, they might say, well, yeah, Frawley's are 10. Maybe. On the subject of injuries, a lot of injured players. Mm. Now, the gut reaction we both had is, and I think it was at that brilliant Sharks, was got these big uh, brutish South Africans really injure a lot of your players. Uh, is it as simple as that, or is it the you know, like the higher standard of the URC is like pushing the pushing the limits everywhere in terms of the playing staff? I, yes, to the second part, but like I would say, you know, what you see is what's happening. Like Leinster came out of that Sharks game 
battered and bruised. Munster came out of their Bulls game battered and bruised. Loads of injuries to Irish players on both sides. You're going, the South Africans are, they're really hard to play against. They're really tough. The game is always physical. Even if they're, even if they're being well beaten, they're still super physical. They never, like that's part of their rugby culture. It's like, they don't throw in the towel. They just go, oh, we're playing shit. We're making huge mistakes. Like the, some of the some of the mistakes that the Bulls made against Monster were cringeworthy, but they're still super tough. And they're just going, let's smash these lads. Oh, and you know, Monsters in their butcher's list, I was about to call it. Uh, at the end of that was fucking horrific. Everyone was injured. Yeah, I think playing South Africans just gets injured. Now I'm curious as to how much of it is a sort of a mental preparedness, and not that the players don't train hard just that it's difficult for your body to condition itself to get to that peak of physicality until you've experienced it before but then if you've got a four times a year at least four times a year and maybe more if you're playing them in the playoffs like four to six times a year um hoping if you get to a final that you do get more accustomed to it because it was certainly my experience watching every northern hemisphere team go down to the Southern Hemisphere was the first test they just weren't up to the pace and the physicality that was the biggest thing like the All Blacks had better skills the Aussies were better coached and you know probably had you know better athletes than the most of it but for the most part it was just the physicality and the speed of execution this is going back a long this is going long back period. forever yeah um, it was the physicality was the big thing and like that was my experience playing it as well like that just the, the Kiwis were more physical. Like, the, there wasn't... They weren't really that much bigger. Like, some... Some of them were big blokes, but some of them weren't. But it was always just more physical. Yeah. And then, the other thing was, you got used to it. You just got up to the, the pace of it, and you sort of go, all right, this is what you have to do. Because every second test, the team... Or certainly... Look, I'm sure you could point to second test where teams got hammered. But in my experience, certainly for Ireland, the second test was always much more competitive... Because basically we just manned up. We were we were accustomed to what we had to do, and we mightn't have had the skills or the football to beat them, but we could stay with them better. You realize what it's like. This is the level that I this have is to the meet. level. Yeah, and and you can do it. Yeah, and it's not just like to be honest. If you start running and you get to whatever number of kilometers or at whatever pace, and then you go from five to ten or ten to fifteen or ten to twelve, whatever it is. It's a struggle the first time that you do it. And the second time you do it, it's easy. Like your head knows how to regulate your body. The first time that you do it, you're knackered. Yeah. Or it's, it's, if it's not easy, it's or, doable. It's achievable. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. Yeah, like it's achievable. It's like the first time you do it, you have to overcome like how bad your gut feels or how tired your legs are, how much your lungs are burning. The second time you do it, you go, geez, I'm doing it quicker and it's miles easier because my, my head knows I can do it, knows how to regulate my body doing it. So I... Look, guys are still going to get injured, but I do think it's positive for Irish rugby to have this exposure to the Safis. There was an interesting story as well, which came out a number of years after Razzie left Munster, about how hard he was and how tough he was and what he saw as malingerous. Lads who he thought were like, yeah, you were injured. Now you're not. Now you're just fucking like soft. You know, get back out, train properly, uh, or I'm not going to pick you at all again this season. Now I'm paraphrasing, but like the that was like the gist of the article. It's like Razzie's really tough. 
and he expects all the other players that he's coaching to be tough. If you've got a broken leg, you can't play Grant. But if you're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sore after that match, you'd be like, of course you were, it's rugby. You know, get out of fucking training. Like, nobody's taking training days off unless they're injured. So it's a, it is a different... Like, I would say that Razzie's a very charismatic person, but, like, I would say in that in that uh, remit or in that aspect, he's just, like, a typical South African. It's like, it is a tough game. You're supposed to be tough. Get out and play. Yeah, so, and Razzie's a high welder and he's a military guy like himself and um, Nina Arbor met each other in the military. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked about the national game in South Africa and and just, like, how much of that Boer mentality and how much of that physicality informs their rugby. Um, so it doesn't surprise me in the slightest to hear that story about Razzie. I guess that leaves us to talk about Leinster, who racked up another victory over Munster at the weekend. Um, I texted you at halftime. I texted both of you at halftime with the single portmanteau no uh what does he call it when you coin a new word what's that phrase neologism oh well done squander fest i said you're there with your tabula rasa and you're there with your neologism uh squander fest was the word i used to describe leinster's first half performance and then there was this weird moment where munster went ahead in the second half and i just went you're clearly not going to win this. Like, no chance. And the boys in blue did the business. Yeah, it was. A, they played a huge amount of of brio and zip in the first half and made a lot of errors in in the monster twenty two, like errors in execution, decision making errors as well, and unforced errors and forced errors. You know, there were knock ons which which weren't forced, like Key and Healy dropping one, Johnny Sexton dropping one. There were sort of forced but unusual errors like Dan Sheehan losing the ball in contact after a nice sidestep. Um, there was decision-making errors such as, you know, Dan Sheehan at the back of a mall that was going over the line I had the chance to look up and realise he was going to be putting the ball down on about three people. Like, there was no way he was going to be able to score from where he was. And instead of instead of going, okay, we keep on recycling this, we'll, we'll score, he, he went to put the ball down when there was nowhere to put the ball down. Jenkins hauled over backwards and going like, as as you said to me, is it like the Leinster lads ha- are, haven't got the fucking email about it being a goal line drop it after being held up over the line or something? And then, you know, another decision making or communication error where, where uh, Keen Healy fired a ball out to Scott Penny and, and Osborne ran directly into it. And, you know, an impossible to hold pass, but he, he fell over the line. You know, if it had been a soft pass, he was through. So that was like, that's all in the first half. You know, two held up over the lines, one dropped under the shadow of the post from Sexton, one knocked out of his hand five metres out from uh, from Sheehan, and then one pass like four or five metres out that just barrels off uh, Osborne's chest and hands. Like, quite a lot of try-scoring opportunities there. All of them missed. But like you, I felt that Leinster had so much of the ball. I know, obviously, then Johnny Sexton missing a very routine early place kick. So we Leicester had so much of the ball uh, and played so much of the rugby that when they went behind, it was relatively early um, in the second half. And I, I felt as well, like, oh, you know, we just need one of these to stick and 
not only are we back in the game, but like we'll be in a pretty commanding mm-hmm. position. Munster's bench to come off was very callow, and Leinster had a lot of pop on the bench. Yeah, there's not much more to say. I, I guess in given the given the end to Leinster's season, particularly last year, where they had done so well for most of it, but then like within a week we're we're gone at our two tournaments. There is a kind of a concern that can't they finish what happens if they, they squander so many chances in a match that they then lose? Like, you know, what sort of self recriminations or bloodletting occurs after that? But then you you kind of think to yourself, well, like, should we call them the posh robots anyway in the blue machine? <laughs> like it's it's not a it's not an algorithm, you know, like there is like a certain level of randomness and just willingness to play and um look I thought they played really well. I, I thought the good decision to put Osborne on the wing because I I thought not that I think it's his best position, mm-hmm. but I thought he played very well. I thought like it, it gave him another start. Um it sort of showcased how quick he is. Yeah, much quicker that, than I thought. I thought that Frawley at fullback was a success. Um I thought it was good to have Jimmy back on the wing rather than fullback. I think it suits him better. Do you? Yeah. Um, and, uh, like, the midfield of, like, Henshaw, Ringrose, and Sexton is, is magnificent uh, yeah. in sort of a different ways. And and Luke McGrath's a kind of... Um, oh, I'm trying to... Like, I don't know. He's sort of... He's not quite Milner, like, but he's... He, you know, he's, he's just one of these guys. Like, he's never going to... He's not going to be called up for international duty now. So he's like he's a he's an Irish guy who plays really well, who's never going to be picked again for Ireland. And like he's just always there. And he's he's like a brilliant rugby player and a terrible scrum half type of thing. And like that that's kind of overblown it a bit, but you're going like he's such a good rugby player whose the core scrum half skills aren't good enough to to make the sort of the well, just passing the international grade stuff like I think his, his running is great I think his game reading is really good but he gets better passing. he gets better and better yeah. you know like he's he's like he'll get better this season and he'll get better next season and he'll be better the season after that like he's he's uh, in, in a kind of in a, in a different way than Mac in a different way than Mac Mac Hansen but he's he's very Mr. Leinster yeah. So Mac Hansen's this guy who arrived out of nowhere, whereas Luke is this guy who was heralded for ages, and you sort of think he's going to go on to greater things if you want. But he he sort of hasn't. He hasn't like he's become an absolute Leinster legend, but he hasn't. And a lot of his career ran parallel with that of Conor Murray. So he wasn't going to overtake Conor Murray, but like he's not going to overtake Jameson Gibson Park, and he's not going to overtake like Casey or uh, Doke. Doke. You know, like his. So he's. But, like, he'll retire from Leinster as an absolute champion. Yeah. Even though, like, you still blame him for the kicking the ball to Binny Vunapola in the, in the Saracens match. Mm. But you go, like, he's... But he keeps on bouncing back from all that sort of stuff and just, like, captaining the team. And it was great seeing him go over from five yards and just going through somebody. Yeah. And and finishing off. And it, it's not surprising. So I the reason I think I'm talking about Luke McGrath as much is that there's... 
there is a narrative and it's it's one that we probably subscribe to about the about the machine like about the autonomous like quality to uh steal a, a line from Nigel Starmer Smith. But it's it's not all like that. Like it's it's about guys like Luke McGrath and Reese Ruddock who are your Len and Ross Maloney, like they're the guys who play for Leinster all the way through the league and train hard and like really prepare themselves and have a good standard and uh don't go to all the like they play in the null in February mm. when other you know when younger guys are making their debuts but like that's the spine of your team and I think that's very reflective of the sort of culture that Leo Cullen inculcates like I, I think Cullen loves that stuff I agree yeah I mean I think those those names you picked out in particular those guys who, like Reese has been captain and you know and and played in the Six Nations, started a Six Nations game, his first Six Nations game a couple of seasons ago. Don't think Luke has ever started in a Six Nations. Ross Maloney is uncapped. Like Ross Maloney is very close to 150 caps for Leinster now, and and you know never been capped for Ireland. Like that's a huge rarity in Leinster. Mostly the guys who have 150 caps are the guys who have 50 Irish caps. But Maloney last season was a big season for him, um, and this season he started really well. You're going like well, and and he should. He's a, you know right age profile for when a second row is going to be playing really good rugby. But it is more the toughness, the hard headedness, the rugby intelligence that those three fellas have. And you know leadership, bravery, durability. All of these things are important. It's really important to be able to get on the pitch be able to play when you're hurt and those guys do that all the time there was a in certainly in in schmidt's last season and then in o'connor's first season but really in schmidt's there was a sort of a uh, a gladiator are you not entertained quality to the way that leinster played because under schmidt they were real ticky tacka just keep the ball like it, it wasn't glamorous it was just like play territorially keep the ball best form of attack is just dominating possession and it was kind of the crowd were kind of murmuring and you're sort of going, well, I'm not really being entertained by this, you know, rapid fire rugby. Like I'm, I'm having to watch umpteen passes in a row, short passes. And then Matt O'Connor came in and you're going, actually winning was miles better. Oh God. Yeah. <laughs> like this dross of like passing behind people's shoulders, running across the pitch is absolute fucking shit. Bring back Schmidt ball, bring back Tiki Taka. And it's it's that kind of discipline and training and ability to transfer it to a match and that earnestness is is actually probably the hallmark of Leinster for the last decade between Cullen as a captain and Cullen as a coach. Um, and in between, like, they throw out very talented players. But it's guys like Robbie Henshaw and Andrew Porter um, who are like physical and like really, really committed as much as it is Gary Ringrose and Brian O'Driscoll. Mm -hmm. It's more weighted towards Porter and Henshaw. So it was, it was a very encouraging win for the Blue Machine. Have to give credit to the forwards. 